Hey, welcome to Thursday. Welcome to Thursday. My favorite day of the week. I was talking to my buddy Nick a couple nights ago, and we were talking about how great Thursday is. And if you have a front-heavy three-day weekend where you have Friday off, so you get these two Fridays, that's always an amazing experience. I like a front-heavy three-day weekend rather than a back-heavy one. Because it, while it's nice, I mean, nobody's going to complain about having a Monday off. It feels like having two Sundays. You feel like you've been given this extra Sunday that's better than having to go do something on a Monday. It's better than having an obligation. But you can't enjoy it in the same way that you do having a Friday off. So this front-heavy three-day weekend is the way to go. Because even if you have to go do something on Friday, like even if you have to go to work or school on a Friday, Thursday still feels like you get a... a a slight weekend feeling. You know there's one more day left. You know the pressure's off a little bit. Typically, Fridays don't feel like other days of the week. If nothing else, in your own mind, you know this is it, and then I get a breather. And so when you actually have Friday off, it's that much better. You feel like you have two Fridays. And uh, this is uh, it came from a conversation I had with the Trader Joe's kid a few years ago, and I brought this up before, but I was talking to him this kid at Trader Joe's, the cashier, and he's like, how are you doing today? And I said, oh, I'm great. You know, it's Thursday. It's my favorite day of the week. And he said, me too. You know, uh, I call it First Friday. And it blew my mind. I was like, you're, you're absolutely on the money, kid. You're on the money, kid. First Friday. It sounds religious. You hear about Good Friday. First Friday. Every week. Every week, Thursday is First Friday. I even like the word Thursday, though. You know, it's not just, I almost don't want to call it First Friday, even though that fits, because I just like the word Thursday. I like Thursday so much that the word Thursday itself gets me excited, just thinking about it. I should look up what day of the week I was born on. If it's not Thursday, that's okay, but I, I hope it's a Thursday. <laughs> I, you know, it's okay if I wasn't born on a Thursday, but, you know, I would like to just, I, I should check. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't check, and I should just, in my mind, I should leave that possibility open that maybe I was born on a Thursday. I like that front-loaded weekend, a front-loaded three-day weekend where you get Thursday as your first Friday. I mean, maybe it's even better to say Friday is second Thursday. Maybe that's more respectful to Thursday is to say that Friday is second Thursday. Happy second Thursday to you, kid. Let's all... <laughs> the cult of Thursday. Everything revolves around Thursday. Instead of other days of the week, we can start saying, it's second Thursday. Third Thursday. Third Thursday. That's poetry right there, right? Fourth Thursday. Fifth Thursday. Each day of the week. You just put a, a number in front of it, and then Thursday after it. Every day is Thursday. Every night's a school night. Every day is Thursday. And not to get too negative, but there really is something to that. When you have a Monday off, it just feels like Sunday has been doubled. And you it's better than nothing. It's absolutely, it's better than having to go do something. It's better than having an obligation. But it has that same sort of existential dread for me when your Sunday has been split into two and now Monday, because you're never going to change the way Monday feels. Monday always feels like Monday. And of course, the way our system is worked out is that 
when you have a holiday, it typically falls on a Monday, when really it should fall on a Friday, in my opinion. I think that you would get more out of it. It's almost like we're going to give people holidays. This is where I get, you know, as much as I love this idea of like, there's a big new Brzezinski, whatever his name is, uh, as much as I love his quote, you know, history is more the product of chaos than conspiracy. And as much as I try to shut down this idea that society is this massive conspiracy to ruin our lives and make us unhappy, as much as I rally against that, I kind of feel like this is a conspiracy. I kind of feel like we, I kind of feel like they made holidays fall on Mondays so that we would enjoy them less than we would if they fell on Fridays. I just, I feel like they did that to us deliberately. You know, instead of giving them two Fridays, two Thursdays, let's give them two Sundays. Give them two Sundays. Yeah, we're giving you a weekend, but, you know, we're going to give you a double the existential dread because you're going to go through, you got 24 hours a Sunday. And what's better than, uh, what creates more uh, existential dread in somebody than 24 hours a Sunday? 48. Monday always feels like Monday. Sunday always feels like Sunday. Whereas Thursday and Friday, too, Thursdays in particular, you feel, you don't feel like you're tapping into your weekend yet. You don't feel like you're, you don't feel like you've tapped into your weekend supply of time on a Thursday night. It's like you get two Fridays. I get this one to kind of, I can kind of waste this one and not waste it, but you know, I can do what I want with it and not feel like I'm depleting my supply. I'm not depleting my supply of weekend time by doing whatever I do on Thursday. So uh, that's that's just how I feel. That's how I feel about Thursday. I think, you know, we could really, I think our mental health, I think our societal mental health would take a major jump upward. I think it would, it would climb. We, it, would, it would measurably climb. We'd be putting some of those psychiatrists out of the jobs. We'd see some, we'd start seeing a lot more for rent signs outside of psychiat- former psychiatry offices. A lot of psychiatrists would suddenly have a lot more free time if we started putting holidays on Fridays opposed to Mondays, if we observed. I always like that, observed. The holiday is observed on Monday. This is when we observe it. Strange, sounds esoteric. We're going to observe this holiday. How did you observe the holiday? Observation. But I was meditating this morning, and uh, the phone, you know, sometimes I, the phone will vibrate. I'll purposely leave the phones on so that they potentially, they might vibrate. I like sometimes taking things as they come. I think, you know, if you feel, you know, if you've been meditating for a while, or maybe not a while, but, you know, I think, as much as people try to encourage these pristine conditions, you must meditate in a relatively empty room that is clean and sit this way. You must ritualize it. It must be pristine. You must have no distractions. You know, people encourage that, and for good reason. You know, because you know you're not going to get to that. You're not going to be able to hit that frequency as easily if this shit going on all around you. 
It's just the truth. You're just not going to be able to to cultivate that. But I feel like once you've been able to cultivate that, it's not bad to allow the possibility of distraction. Because the whole idea, as I said before, and I think it was Alan Watts who said this, is you meditate so that you don't have to meditate. And so you're stuck in that sort of catch-22 where you're doing this thing so you don't have to do it. So you can basically live your life and be able to access that state would be one way of thinking of it. And of course, living your life is filled with disruption. So the idea is to train your mind in such a way that you can handle disruption. You can handle things being thrown at you. But we have this idea that when you're training your mind through meditation, when you're tapping into that frequency or that state that you can't have any distractions. So sometimes I, you know, sometimes that's what I want. Sometimes I'll have the phones on silent. I'll be in a certain room. I'll be sitting in a certain place where I think there's going to be less distraction. I'm not going to hear that leaf blower. I'm not going to be able to hear what my neighbors are doing. But sometimes it's good to allow that. Sometimes it's good to allow those disruptions to come. And today when I was meditating, my mom's phone, her old cell phone rang. It vibrated. We still say ring, but it vibrated. And I got up and looked at it mid-meditation. Who knew? You know, things are weird right now. I wanted to make sure there wasn't an emergency. I wanted to make sure. uh, Who knows? You know, I just wanted to make sure of something. Making sure. And when I sat back down and started meditating again, I started hearing a a phone vibrating the whole rest of the time. Because there are all kinds of sounds vibrating around you as it is. The fridge vibrates. The fridge was making a vibrating sound. And even though the fridge, it made more of this drone, you know, the vibration of the fridge is much more of this sustained, constant drone. Because the phone had rang, I was starting to hear the fridge and other noises almost rhythmic. It, was, it became rhythmic, where I was basically hearing the same rhythm as the phone vibration in this thing that doesn't have that same rhythm. Or maybe it does, but there's a lot more going on. So I was honing in on this particular rhythm that sounded like the rhythm of a vibrating phone, and I was hearing it the whole rest of the meditation. And pretty much an auditory hallucination. I mean, I was hearing real sounds, but I was distorting them. I was limiting them in such a way that they sounded like this thing that had distracted me, this thing that had disrupted my meditation. And you think about the ways that you do that normally. You know, if you can do that with things that are are actually happening around you, and you know, we don't need to get into the idea of like what's really happening, you know. But uh, if something is, if you're actually hearing something, but your brain is distorting it in such a way that it sounds like something else, you know, what does your brain do with things that aren't visual, that aren't auditory, with things that are just what does your brain do with thoughts? You know, how do you distort those? How do you, how does your perspective on those get very cloudy, clouded? And it, it does happen, but just to stick with the, the sonics for right now, I had an experience early on in meditation a couple years ago where I was at a park sitting on a bench and it was, I was very new to meditation and I just, I, it was, I had some initial breakthroughs. You know, I talk about that incremental progress, but you need breakthroughs in order to stay committed to something. You know, as much as the process should be the reward unto itself, sometimes, or especially early on when you're doing something, you need a little, uh, you need a little 
you need exciting things to happen to keep you doing it. Otherwise, you feel like, well, what am I really doing? Does this really work? Is there anything actually to this? So having breakthroughs is, is interesting. But an early breakthrough I had is I was at this park, which was already kind of a personal breakthrough. Well, you know, just to be sitting at a park, a public place with my eyes closed and to not be worried about somebody creeping up behind me. I mean, that's big for me. As a very hypervigilant person, to be sitting in a public place with my eyes closed. And even though I was aware of every little sound, to think that I can't see if somebody's walking up to me. I can't see. But I could hear, I could certainly hear, and I could hear kids off in the distance. It was, a, it was a wetland, so there were a lot of different sounds going on, some animal sounds, some people. And it was really interesting, because if you've ever played with a delay pedal, sounds will start to melt into each other. And I don't mean that everything was looping, I don't mean that everything had some noticeable echo or anything like that, but I did start to notice that as I got deeper into this frequency of meditation, that the sounds, they sort of melted into each other. They just sort of, I, I, could, I would describe it as a melting effect, but it reminded me of a delay pedal. It just reminded me of the way that the decay of certain sounds melts into the next repetition, and it just, it all seemed to just be, I don't know, it just, it just, it all kind of just seemed to be, the sounds just seemed to be melting into each other is the only way I would put it. And it was... I, and I knew it was a moment where I knew there was something to this. I was like, okay, there's something to this. This is happening. I'm experiencing this. So meditation is a good exercise in learning what your brain can do, even with sensory input. And, of course, one of the big focuses of meditation is training your mind, understanding how your thoughts grow, the ebb and the flow of your thoughts, where they come from, how they connect to each other. And as I mentioned, your thoughts are much more like Wikipedia than you even realize, where when you really focus on your thoughts as they come and go, sometimes you'll notice that they're almost hyperlinked to each other, where you'll think about some kid you had a class with once, and then you'll remember that his mom worked out at this gym and that gym, you went to that gym once, and this happened, and that reminds you of this other experience. And you don't notice your brain doing that normally. You don't, no, you don't really notice how your thoughts are interconnected normally. Sometimes you do. I mean, of course you do sometimes. But you don't realize how interconnected all of your thoughts are. And when you don't disrupt that process, you know, when you... And, and that's, it's interesting how when we meditate or we try to do anything relaxing, how we are trying to avoid disruption... But yet the act of meditation itself is a disruption of your the flow that was going on before then, your mental flow. By meditating and training your brain, you're actually stopping, you're disrupting the previous flow of thoughts, and you go through life with that just building momentum. I mean, of course you don't realize, of course you're not aware of the ways that uh, your thoughts are hyperlinked because you've built up this momentum. And going back to the delay pedal example, you know, most delay pedals, if you turn the frequency of, I don't, I don't, I don't remember what it's called. I don't know what the, I don't know what this knob is called. You think I know what the knob on the delay pedal is called? You think I know? Why are you asking me? Uh, but there's, there's one knob where if you turn it all the way to the right, it ups the frequency of the, the repetitions of the delay 
and it turns it into a loop. It's a very crude loop where the sound just starts to build on itself so much that it eventually just turns into nonsense. It turns into just, you can't, there's no distinction to it, and it increases in volume, and it usually doesn't sound very good. Uh, You just end up with this looping mess, and every sound that runs through it ends up sounding the same, because everything is just, every frequency is overlapping with every frequency, and... It's looping so quickly that there's just no distinction to the sounds. But if you don't disrupt your thinking, if you're just going through life and your thoughts are just building on each other, it becomes like that delay pedal effect where everything is just looping, 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 momentum. And it's hard to actually differentiate anything, let alone know how it connects or where it comes from. And so that can happen to you. So you meditate or you have some sort of practice to clear your mind or to, at the very least... Learn how to grab hold of your thoughts at the roots or examine them at their roots. And, and so your brain is, is doing that constantly, but you disrupt that. And so that's a positive disruption. You know, it's a constructive, it gives you contrast. Again, that's a theme lately is it gives you some kind of contrast. Because if you're going through your life, it's just, there's no contrast. Your thoughts are just there always. And so you give yourself contrast by clearing your mind and focusing on, Where are these thoughts coming from? How do they connect to each other? And when you look at that, you learn how to handle them better. So this thing that is supposed to be non-disruptive, oh, I'm just going to sit here quietly with my eyes closed and really limit what's coming in and certainly limit what's going out. And that itself is an act of disruption. You're disrupting the flow of thoughts But it is funny how we have this idea that this has to be pristine. So I willingly allow disruptions sometimes. And I mean, I had it yesterday. Sometimes it's not even something you can control. Yeah, you can put your phone on silent and, you know, so that, you know, you you won't hear the phone vibrating while you're meditating. You won't have to fight that impulse to get up and look to see who's calling or you won't have to actually get up because, I mean, today I did. You know, it's happened before where I've gotten a call during meditation and I've heard it. And I just let it ride out. And that's really disruptive. You know, you know that's, a, that's really difficult. You're just sitting there and you're like, I want to check it. I want to look. But you don't. Um, but uh, with the dog barking yesterday, you know, it was, I was like, ooh, it was difficult. Even though I was okay with it. You know, I, I didn't let myself be bothered. I wasn't mad. I just continued the meditation and I let him bark, but it was like my body still jolted every time he let out a yelp. You know, I couldn't change the fact that it was very loud in my ears. I couldn't change that, but I just let it happen. I let that disruption be a part of it because I think that's good. Because if you're learning to meditate so that you don't have to meditate, or so that you can take that, maybe a better way of thinking of it outside of this weird riddle of meditating so I don't have to meditate. Getting away from the riddles is just, you want to be able to exercise a similar amount of control over your thoughts and to just have that sense of control, to be able to clear the momentum as you're going about your day. On a practical level, that's what meditation helps you do. It helps you handle the momentum of living your daily life at the very least. And so sometimes it's good to work disruption into meditation and allow your dog to bark and just let him do it. Let him do it. Even if you're not getting into that deep zen, 
you know, that, that blissful, follow your bliss state, you know, even if you're not getting there, sometimes it's better to have something going on that you have to contend with or not contend with. Or accept that, you know, my ears are going to hear this loud noise. My body's going to jolt every time it happens. But not to see it as something that you need to manage or you need to do something about. Not something you need to act on. That can be helpful, too. And, you know, you can feel bad about... You know, you think about sometimes when your life changes and you can feel bad. I think back about when I first started meditating and my old cat, Rosie, my beloved old cat, where it was in my old house, the small little house, and she would... I was new to meditation. I was just getting those initial breakthroughs, but it was still... It, it was all very new. I, I felt like it was all very... Everything felt very sensitive. Everything had to be perfect. This room has to be dark. There can't be any sound. I'm learning. I'm, you know, I, I need the perfect learning environment. And of course, Rosie saw that as an opportunity to get up on my lap, get in my face, and meow very loudly. She had gone deaf, so she had no control over her volume. And I would get mad. You know, it didn't happen more than once or twice, but I remember one evening, late in the evening, just, you know, I was so focused on getting into this deep state. I was so focused on becoming the deep state. And Rosie was just really, just really wanted something. Maybe my attention, who knows what it was, but she was just getting up in my face. And I was getting really mad. I was yelling at this deaf cat. And you can just see the absurdity of that. It's like you're meditating. And yet the fact that something is not ideal, something outside of you is not ideal and it is making loud noises. So it's bringing the absolute opposite of the desirable, it's bringing the the state. It's bringing a state out of me that is the absolute opposite of what I am desiring, what I am trying to access. So there's just this absurdity of that. Getting really mad at your cute, beloved, sweet old cat because I'm trying to meditate, and I've learned from that. And so I'm not. I don't get mad at Batty when he barks when I'm meditating, and you can feel some guilt over that. You know, you can think like, oh, you know. It's not fair to Rosie that I got mad at her once when I was trying to meditate, and now I don't get mad at another creature. I've learned. And you can kind of will yourself into bad patterns of behavior with that mindset of, oh, well, it's not fair to everyone else that I used to be a dick, so I'm going to be a dick to everyone so that it's fair. You know, it's easy to get into that thinking. It sounds ridiculous, but we do that, where it's like, oh, because I got mad at Rosie, just as an act of fairness, I have to get mad at Batty when he barks. And it's like, no, I learned from the absurdity of getting mad at Rosie, and now, fortunately for Batty, he doesn't get yelled at for just doing what he naturally does, for barking. And we can do that with relationships, where it's like, oh, I used to be, I used to say things like this and do things like this to my ex-girlfriend, and they I wish I hadn't done that, and I've learned from that, and so I'm not going to do that to my new girlfriend. But people can also say, well, because I used to do that, you know, it's just, an, you know, as an act of fairness, in the spirit of fairness, I'm going to be, I'm going to say and do those things that I used to do, just so that everybody's equal, and it's, you can easily punish people uh, just in this weird distorted attempt to be fair 
And you see that even with actual punishments, where one kid does something wrong in a classroom and everybody in the class gets punished because we're all together. We're all, we're all in this together. We all get punished together. You know, we all get praised together. But yeah, you can easily keep up bad behaviors because you think, well, I used to do that. I used to do that to that person. And so this person or this creature, I need to do it to them too because that just, it's it's fair. It's, it's only fair that I continue to do that. Maybe I'm getting, maybe people don't do this. Maybe, maybe people don't think this way, but I think they do. At the very least, you know, I thought about it. I thought about, well, you know, was it really fair to Rosie? And it's like, well, you know what's the fairest thing I could do is learn from that. That seems really fair. I think learning from your own mistakes is, you know, much more fair than keeping them going just to be consistent. And I mean, it could be good things too. I mean, there could have been good things that you no longer do as well. I think about when I was in my early 20s and I was much more romantic. I felt, and it was real, you know, it wasn't that I was uh, forcing it, but I just felt a lot more romantic. And, you know, granted, dating and relationships aren't really a part of my life anymore. But I have had that experience later on where it's like, oh, I'm just not as romantic as I was when I was like 20 or whatever, 22. And I feel bad, like, oh, I should be romantic because I was romantic then. And who knows, maybe I'll be romantic again. But it's just one of those things where you can kind of beat yourself up over what you see as inconsistencies in your behavior. And you can just kind of accept that ah, that's not really how it is now. It's not really how things are anymore. But I do think, I recommend to anybody who's into meditation, you know, as much as they'll tell you, empty room, empty thoughts, phone off. Try leaving your phone on sometimes. That auditory hallucination is interesting, too. You'll hear it. Even if it doesn't ring at all, you might hear it. And my friend Steve in high school, he said something that stood out to me. We were talking about, I mean, this is before vibrating phones, so I'm not sure. We we may have been talking about a, a good old classic, a traditional ringing phone, and how that's something you'll hear, too, if you have a landline. I still have this landline. I haven't shut it down yet. Uh, and I'll, I'll hear it. It doesn't ring very often, and it's always a telemarketer. But I will hear a ringing. Sometimes I'll be in the other room, and I'll think that the phone is ringing, and it didn't. And it makes sense that ringing and vibration is something that we... Because those are going on all the time. There are always ringing sounds. There's always vibrating sounds. So it makes sense that we would then think that we are hearing a particular ring or a particular vibration. It's like we can pick it out. It's almost like our brain hallucinates that it's... Even though it's not hallucinating the sound itself or the sensation itself, it's almost like our brain puts certain it, it puts certain definitions around it. It renders it in such a way that we think it is this completely other sound. And that sounds like a hallucination to me. Even if something is there, if you're distorting it in some way, that's a hallucination. So you, we have these auditory hallucina- hallucinations all the time. And my friend Steve, he, he was like, it's like your mom's voice. And it blew my mind because it was so obvious. But that's one of them where growing up, you know, your mom's calling you from another room, from downstairs. She's letting you know about something and it's important. You're supposed to listen at the very least. Your mom's calling you, you got to report. And so of course you would hear that. When you hear frequencies that 
vaguely resemble the sound of your mom's voice calling you, you're going to do a double take. You're going to think, oh, is that my mom's voice? Is my mom calling me? So it's interesting how we take these sounds that are important and we hear them in everything. Any frequency that hits upon that note, we, we tend to hear it. And what does your mind do with your thoughts? I mean, your mind is doing that with your thoughts all the time. You are distorting your thoughts. I mean, they're not even as tangible as a sound or a visual, and you can distort those too. I mean, sometimes just to go to the visual thing, I'll be on a walk and I'll be kind of in my own zone and I'll look up ahead and I'll see something. It might be a it might be an electrical panel on the side of the road, something like that, some sort of box, an electrical box. And just the angle, and or it could be a, a bush, it could be anything, and just the angle, it'll look like an animal to me, or it'll look like something, it'll look like a person. And in that moment, there I have this distinct vision of what I think that thing is. And then, of course, I, I take another look at it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's it's not that. And that's where you kind of get into object meditation, which I don't do, which is, you know, my I tend to do closed-eye meditation. Uh, but there's a lot of meditation practice where you keep your eyes open. Sometimes you focus on either an object in your mind or you look at an actual object. And one of the approaches people take to that is to try to dissociate from that object and see it for what it actually is. You know, right now at this exact moment, I'm looking at this little Vornado fan on my floor, and you would look at that and not define it and not think, that's a fan. I know what that is. That's a fan. But look at it for what it is. Look at it for the shape that it is and try to distance yourself from that definition you have of it. Distance yourself from that idea of what that thing does. Distance yourself from the noun and just see it. And and so that's, you know, just one approach to object meditation. I, I wouldn't, I can't pretend to, the, that covers the whole thing. But there's this idea of kind of dissociating yourself. In the same way that, you know, I was listening to these people at this wetlands park and the sounds all sort of melted into each other, but I felt very dissociated because that was the other side of it. As these sounds sort of melted into each other, they no longer sounded like birds and children and whatever else I was hearing. It no longer sounded that way to me, and I felt like I was just hearing these sounds as they are. And what is that? Well, you can't really say. You can't really say what that thing is, because you've taken away the definitions that you have applied to it, and you only really get glimpses of that. You only really get moments where it's where you feel separated from it, because a second later, it's like, oh, that's a kid. But hearing things as they are, and I've done that with Batty. You know, when Batty barks, if I'm in meditation, I'll just, I'll think about the sound itself and the fact that that sound is coming from nowhere, the fact that that sound is coming from nothing. It wasn't there a second ago. Yeah, I know he has a little body that can produce those sounds. I know he has vocal cords. I know he has lungs. I know that he heard something that per that causes him to react that way. But when you think about the the fact that that sound wasn't there a second ago, and now it's it's here and it's loud. It fills the room. People can hear it outside. You know, it's an interesting thing. It's just it's part of the whole phenomenon.
Uh, but you know, the fact that you can do that with your own thoughts as well. And if, if a friend's ever called you and they're seeking your counsel, they're seek a friend called me and was seeking my counsel. But if a friend ever calls you and they want your advice, they just want to vent. They don't even, maybe not even advice. They're just venting. They're complaining. They're telling you about what someone did at work. They're telling you about what their girlfriend said. They're telling you what their, um, it could be anything. Oh, that new guy that I'm dating said this, and it's completely undermined uh, my foundation. Because I, I think it means this. Oh, you're totally right, girl. You know, it's like there's a tendency to, this pressure to do that, to be like, well, you're, you, you're totally right. Your interpretation is totally right. But if you're a good friend, you'll hear what they're saying and not challenge them, but also maybe not encourage their view. Because you'll, you'll see where their view is wrong. You'll see where their perspective is wrong. You'll see where they've distorted what was said. And maybe you don't have the full context, but you'll see where you know someone can say something or do something, and because you weren't on the receiving end, you have a completely different perspective on it. You have an objective perspective. And even if you love your friend and you support your friend, you'll still hear it and think, well, I don't know that that was what they, they were intending. But when you're in this state, when you're you, and you're thinking as yourself, when you're like, I'm me, and everything I see is, is somehow, when you have that momentum, when you haven't cleared your own air, I think sometimes everything kind of takes a certain shape, and you distort everything. Everything you come into contact with becomes a distortion. Your definitions are very strict. Your definitions of everything. And so if someone says this, they must mean that. But if you're listening to it, you think, oh, that's that coworker who said that to you it just doesn't sound like they meant it to be this passive-aggressive assault. I just don't think that's what they meant. But sometimes people want that. I mean, you think about someone's personal story, and stories are defined by struggle, Stories are defined by contrast, as I've talked about a lot lately, how it's, you know, what makes a story is contrast. It's going from a bad situation to a good situation. It's something is resolved, and the only kind of resolutions we are interested in hearing about tend to be ones that are marked by contrast, by something bad becoming good. There's a separation. Uh, we think about our own personal stories, though, and the way that we define those by struggles. And when those struggles don't exist, we invent them. You know, when you, you have a job, you go to a job every day, and it's more or less, it's boring, you don't want to be there, but it's more or less easy, and you're earning a living. So what makes your story more interesting? Oh, my coworker said something to me, and they must have meant this. And maybe they did. Maybe they did. Oh, my, I think my two of my coworkers went for a walk. <laughs> and and they I know they were talking about me. Two of my coworkers, they went for a walk and I could it looked like they were they kind of glanced over at me. I couldn't hear them. They kind of glanced at they oh I know they were talking about me. They were talking about the fact that I, you know, I did this this way. And I, you know, I've had that happen. I, I remember in 5th grade, two of my friends, we were we were having like a class party or something and you know, we were celebrating Thursday, obviously, 
and two of my friends went to the bathroom together, which as little boys, you know, you can, it's, it's somehow not, uh, not gay. <laughs> It'd be like, let's go to the bathroom together. Uh, but, uh, they went to the bathroom together and this other friend of mine, a third friend, he came up to me right away and he, he looked really stressed out and he said, uh, he said those two friends names because they just went to the bathroom together. Go with them. Go with them because I know they're talking about me. I know they went to the bathroom to talk about me. And I remember just looking at him, and he, he looked so frantic. He looked so worried. Oh, my God, two friends went to the bathroom together to talk about me. Even if they did, and they may have, you know, because that's the thing. Kids can be vicious. He probably thought that because they were kind of maybe sparring with him a little bit. Maybe they were making fun of him that day. We were all friends, but still, friends friends are the most brutal to each other, I, I feel. Uh, and especially when you're growing up. But it was just this moment where he, he was just like, I know they're talking to me, and actually, I want you to follow them so that you can hear what they say about me. And it's like, why do you even need to know that? Because that's the thing, is when you clear the air in your brain, you realize that people are thinking about you. People will talk about you. Somebody will think a bad thought about you. Maybe two people will talk shit about you. But why is that even your business? I watched uh, an old Marlon Brando interview years ago. I was on the Dick Cavett show, which was before my time, but I was watching this old Marlon Brando interview and he, Dick Cavett, some movie had come out or something had happened. I don't, I don't remember what it was. This is, this is in the 1970s. And Dick Cavett was like, he read a bunch of negative reviews to Brando and asked him his thoughts about it. And Brando said, why would you tell me that? Why would you tell me about what people are saying about me? Why would you tell me about this, these negative movie reviews where I'm criticized? Why would you tell me the negative things people are saying about me? And that stood out to me. Because up to that point, you know, I, I wouldn't have given it much of a second thought. Like, you know, you, you're just a messenger telling somebody about some reviews they gave. But why would you tell someone that? And for that matter, why would you seek that out yourself? Why would you become your own messenger? Why would you be? Because that's what you become when you seek out negative attention. You become the messenger who is bringing those things to yourself. It's no longer Dick Cavett saying, like, hey, Marlon, what do you think about what this guy said about you? You become that person yourself where you're like, you know, bring, you're, you're going out and you're getting it and you're bringing it into your own brain. Why would you do that? Does your survival depend on it? We tend to think so. You know, we tend to think so, and we want to know where we stand with people. I mean, I understand why we do it. I understand why we seek out that negative attention when we think it exists. But we can become very, we can start to see it where it doesn't exist, for one. You know, I used to talk on here, I don't think I've really talked about it lately, but just one thing that was in, that I noticed when the whole social media thing grew bigger, especially with celebrities. When you started to get celebrities on Twitter, and I have very limited experience with Twitter, uh, but I remember seeing how certain celebrities and certain people in general, because I think everybody kind of took on this way of thinking, and as much as I'm against social media shaming and against phone shaming, it's not that I don't see the downsides. It's not that I don't see where it creates issues, as everything does. Uh, but one thing I, in particular I noticed was that 
oh, people are starting to think that no attention is negative attention. People are starting to think that somebody who doesn't vocally support them is actually opposed to them. They're thinking that when someone doesn't like their posts or encourage them in some way, that they are actively discouraging them. It again goes back to the resist not evil thing, where there's this tendency to think you're either for evil or against evil. You're either resisting evil or encouraging evil, when the reality is sitting somewhere in between you know, sitting somewhere in between is probably the best way to handle evil. Doing nothing to encourage it, not becoming an ally of evil, but not becoming an enemy either, because that encourages evil, because evil wants an enemy. Evil wants attention. Everything wants attention. Everything grows from that attention. So seeing this develop, this, this social media world, it was just one thing that I knew was an issue. As much as I've been opposed to the idea of shaming social media or like being like, oh, this is, it's such a, it's a symptom of our narcissism. We live in a narcissistic time. Uh, social media is, is, is unhealthy, you know, rather than just this outright opposition. It's like, like everything. It has its pros and cons. But one of the cons that I did notice, and I don't know if it's still this way, but was that oh, because we have all these ways of being validated, where it's not just somebody... Because you think about the old system, which was comments. If you had a live journal account and somebody wanted to engage you, they had to comment. Otherwise, you just accepted that people see what I post and they may or may not have something to say. But I am opposed to the like system. I am opposed to that. I am opposed to the little heart thing because I feel like... That it creates this weird, you know, it creates this weird, like, need for validation where you need people to click this button that just means I acknowledge this. Or it just means I'm trying to let you know that I'm acknowledging you. And it's, it obviously became a kind of an evolutionary tool, like a mating tool, where it's like if you, you can tell if a girl likes you because she likes your posts. A girl suddenly starts liking all your posts and so you know. That's how your mom and your dad met. She started. She decided that she wanted to signal to him that she was just all about his whole thing. So she started liking his posts. Uh, so you know, has <laughs> there's just something evolutionary about that, almost. You know, uh, like like the evolution. <laughs> um. Uh, but but in general, though, it's like I, I feel like that created sort of a, a false expectation where it's like if somebody doesn't like my posts, they don't like me. Whereas it's sort of like resist not evil, you know, where it's like, well, they're just, they're not, you know, just because somebody isn't actively encouraging you doesn't mean that they don't accept you or don't think that you're fine the way you are. They just don't, they don't have a reason to engage you. So it created this, this false need for engagement of some kind, like some kind of basic attention or acknowledgement. And I, I knew that was an issue. You know, I knew that was an issue. And you can see where, you know, sometimes we do get into this mindset where everybody who's not patting me on the back is stabbing me in the back. If you ain't patting me on the back, you're stabbing me on the back, in the back. Uh, it's easy to think that way, though. It's easy. It's not just, it's not new. 
just because social media sort of brought that out of people where it's like this idea that everyone who doesn't love me is my hater. And we get into this uh, world where we, you know, we love, well, we love contrast so much that, and we recognize the value of fighting adversity and how so many good stories are about, you know, creating that contrast through adversity. I had everybody against me and I overcame it. I overcame adversity. That we actually manufacture adversity. We end up thinking, all these people who actually aren't in my way were in my way because they weren't pushing me. And it's very narcissistic. You know, people aren't completely wrong when they say that something narcissistic has come out of that way of thinking, because it is very narcissistic to think anybody who's not actively pushing me is trying to hold me down, which isn't the case at all. It's not the case at all. Uh, But the friend of mine in elementary school who was just convinced that the friends were going to go talk about him, just to get back to that, they were going to go talk about him in the bathroom. They were going to the bathroom just so they could talk all about him. Two boys going to the bathroom together so they can gossip. And you know what? They very well might have. I remember what things were like then. And I wouldn't be surprised if those friends went there and did that. But why does he need to know? Why does he need to send me as some sort of spy? And it's not that there was anything wrong with him. We all think this way sometimes. We all have this tendency to think like somebody is talking, somebody is conspiring against me and I need to know because it might hurt me. And it's like, it's all, it's going to hurt your feelings maybe, but it's not actually going to, it's not going to stop you from living and surviving. So why do you need to know? Why do you need to know what people think of you? Like Marlon Brando said, why do you need to tell me that? Why did you feel the need to tell me about these bad reviews, these critical reviews of me? And it's a good question. You could see Dick Cavett on this episode. It's been a long time. It's been like a decade since I watched this. But what I remember is he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to say. You know, and Marlon Brando, of course, was an eccentric guy. Because I think another celebrity would just be like, oh, you know, I don't pay attention to the bad reviews. (laughs) Whereas Marlon Brando cut to the bone, was just like, why did you need to tell me that? It stood out to me, and for that matter, you can ask yourself that. Why do you need to tell yourself about the things that other people might be doing that could be somehow against you in some way? And how, do you, and how can you even know whether or not something is truly against you, or if you're just imagining that? How do you know what your coworker said was actually meant to attack you in some way? Sometimes you know. Sometimes you do know. But even then, why do you need to react? Why do you need to respond? But how do you know for sure what someone's intentions are? How do you know for sure? I mean, that's a good question. If, if your brain is capable of hearing the vibrating sound of a phone when it's not even vibrating, when you're not getting a call, if you're able to hear your mother's voice when she's not calling you, what does that tell you about your own interpretation of events? What does that tell you about your own biases? 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 I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but what does that tell you? I mean, it, it, it should tell you that you can't really be sure even of the things that you are hearing. And if you can't be sure of the things that you are hearing, you shouldn't be entirely sure of the things that you are thinking, especially if they involve what other people are thinking. 
And this is something I used to disagree, uh, disagree with my mom about. And she would always say, you know, people aren't thinking about you as much as you think they are. And she didn't say that because I was in this narcissistic spin of like, everybody's always thinking of me. But it was, it was just a philosophical conversation we would have sometimes. Because my opinion is that people are thinking about each other a lot more than they ever verbalize. I mean, I think about the most random people sometimes, and this isn't a judgment thing. We're not talking about judgment. I'm just talking about simply somebody popping into your brain. I mean, you can have a dream about somebody that you haven't seen in years and you don't think about regularly, and they're stored somewhere. You know, yesterday I was talking, or wherever that was, a couple days ago I was talking about the ghostly clerk in your brain who's going through the archives of every thought and experience you've ever had sometimes when you're sleeping that ghostly clerk just pulls out an in, you know he pulls out a uh, uh, the face of somebody who you haven't seen forever and is just like let's put this person in their, in the dream tonight let's give this person a starring role in the dream tonight and it's a weird experience because you're just like oh I didn't expect to dream about that person I didn't expect that And uh, so you don't really know, you know, you don't really know um, who you're going to think about at any given time. But oftentimes you do think about people who are part of your life. And my opinion, my opinion is that people are constantly thinking about each other, good and bad. And, And in between, you know, people are just thinking about each other. And it was something that I used to disagree with my mom about because, like, you know, her idea was that, you know, people aren't just sitting there thinking. They're worried mainly about themselves. That was, that's what she used to say, is that, and I agree with this, that people are mostly thinking about themselves. And I think that's true, but they are thinking about other people in relation to themselves. It's not that people are thinking about someone just as they are or as they think they are, they are often thinking about those people in relation to themselves. And that gets back to the Brando thing or my friend in elementary school where, you know, it's about what are they saying about me? What are they thinking about me? And it's a good exercise to say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they're saying about me. It doesn't matter what they're thinking about me. And even though I believe that people think about each other a lot more than they ever verbalize, I don't necessarily think it's bad. I don't think people even know what they're thinking. I mean, we're all just contending with, the, with, with what's in our lives and what we experience. You know, we're all just contending with it. We're trying to figure it out that I don't think it has to be all bad or all good. And I think oftentimes it exists somewhere in between. But it's that uncertainty It's that undefined aspect of these things. It's that people aren't even as defined as we think they are. We think we know what they look like and what they sound like and, you know, what they do for a living and what their interests are. And we have a tendency to really, you know, think of people that way. But when we are really thinking about people, when someone is really on our mind, they don't really, they're not really as defined as we think they are, and that's where a lot of the uncertainty comes from. That's why we struggle with our relationships, is because people actually aren't as defined as we think they are, because if they were, you know, if, if people were truly exactly what we envisioned, we would never really have a problem interacting with them. We would understand exactly what they are, and we would know our relationship to them at all times. But the problem is is that we trick ourselves. We have this illusion that we think we know what people are because we know their name. We know what kind of clothes they're wearing. We know what they're, how tall they are. And in the same way that I was talking about object meditation, and the more that you say stare at a fan, 
the more and you and you separate yourself from the definition of what that thing is and what it does you remove the noun you remove even the adjective and you just look at the object as it is as it sits for its shape you know how it, you become dissociated from it in the same way that using a word over and over again dissociates you from the meaning. It happens to me all the time. I'll get on some kick where a word is on my brain, and I'll use it so much that it no longer even sounds like that word, and I don't even know what it means anymore. So it no longer sounds to me like the word that I thought it was, and in repeating it so much, I've just it's totally lost shape. It might as well be run through a delay pedal with the, the frequency of repetitions jacked all the way up. It might as well lose all of that, and I don't even know what that word is anymore. You know, I could just, let's use the word lake. I went, I went down to the lake, you know, lake, lake, lake. I, I'm not going to do it on here. I'm not just going to repeat a word over and over again as an example. Uh, I do that enough naturally. I do it enough naturally. Uh, but, you know, it, it's the same thing. We do that with objects. We do that with words. We do that with people. So if the more that you repeat a word causes that word to lose more of its form, and if the more you stare at a, you know, a static object causes it to kind of lose our understanding of it, we no longer really know what that thing is, the more you think about a person, the more they are going to, going to lose some of that shape too. The more that you think about a person, the more... The, the more possibility, the, the more that person represents, you know, an open range of possibilities because our definitions of them have been stripped down. You know, we've lost some of our definition of who that person is by thinking about them. And that's what we do when we ruminate. That's what we do when we spin our wheels. That's, what, that's why when we think too much, things lose their form and they lose their definition. And that's good. I think that's a good thing. I think that's the healthy thing. That's why we meditate. That's why we explore consciousness, is to stop seeing things, to, to cut through the momentum, because it's the momentum that we, the momentum has created this much more rigid world than the world actually is. All of that momentum has convinced us that this is the thing, this is, I'm losing my words, but, um, all of that momentum that's been going on in our brains has led us to believe that this is the way it is. And the air has been cleared so few times, if ever. You know, some people, I don't think the air of their brain has ever been cleared. They wake up. I mean, that's how I felt. Until two or three years ago, I don't feel like the air in my brain had ever been cleared. You know, there's those, uh, the fire department has these big industrial fans. I guess they're just industrial fans you'd find anywhere. But uh, they can put those in the doorway of a house that has had a fire, and it just shoves all the smoke out. It just clears the air completely. It's incredible. And, you know, we've never really had that done to our minds. And so this momentum is built and built. And with that momentum, things seem more and more real and real according to just our limited perspective. And so the more you think about something, and the more you train your mind, you know, how to think of things as they actually are, how to take things as they actually are, 
you know, the more the the more things get cleared, and the more you see things for what they really are, which is far less defined than you thought they were. And the same is true for people. When you really think about people too much, when you think about anything, when you overthink, when you overanalyze, when you ruminate, you know, you have you have a tendency to place these definitions on things that are far looser than you believe they are. And so, you know, when the momentum of your brain is built up too much, yeah, you see two people go to the bathroom and you think they're going to talk about you. And even if they are, it's none of your business. And that's a trick, too. You think that, oh, if someone's talking about me, that's my business. Well, get ready for an exhausting life. Get ready for, just get ready to be exhausted all the time. If you think it's your business when people think about you, talk about you, if they address you, sure. If they bring that business to you, sure. And of course, you should always look out for yourself. Sometimes people do conspire. Sometimes people do try to get in your way, and you should be aware of that. But if you've cleared your brain and you're not focused on it all the time, if you're not obsessing with it, if you don't think that every time someone thinks about you or talks about you, it's your immediate business, it'll allow you to deal with the times when it is your business a lot better. It'll allow you to work with that with a much the range of possibilities that you'll have for dealing with that thing will be more open, but also much simpler. You'll know what tools are available to you. And one of the greatest tools of all is just doing nothing. And you think about that, like, oh, let's say two of your friends go to the bathroom and talk shit about you in fifth grade. What do you need to do about that? Maybe not be friends with them. Or if there's a greater good, you know, maybe they're your good friends and it's just familiarity breeds contempt. And we're all trying to figure stuff out, so we talk shit sometimes. We're, we spar with each other. And I wouldn't expect a fifth grader's brain to go through all of this. But we carry this with us way beyond fifth grade. We carry these sorts of thoughts with us way beyond fifth grade, where we always think this way. We always feel conspired against. Even people who aren't paranoid at all feel that there's a conspiracy against them. And if it's not the people in their own personal life who are conspiring against them, it's society. Society designed itself to make fat people feel bad. Jeez. When did it decide this? When did that get decided? When was that meeting? You know, so it's like we we end up with this mode where it's like if the people in our personal lives aren't conspiring against us in the bathroom, everything is. And usually we think both. Maybe not usually, but I mean, it's, it's very easy to start thinking that both. As above, so below. They're conspiring against me on the largest possible level, and they're conspiring against me on the lowest possible level. It's just a conspiracy against me. Because everybody's my hater, and anybody who's not actively encouraging me, anybody who's not pushing me, anybody who's not sticking a $20 bill in my back pocket, everybody who's not, you know, paying for my, uh, everyone who's not paying for, you know, my way, my tuition, everybody who's not uh, shaking my hand and slipping me a $20 bill, I don't know why I'm focused on that. 
who gives you all that money? You know? <laughs> what strangers are giving you $20 bills? But, um, you know, it's, it's easy to get in that mindset where it's like everybody who's not actively encouraging me is actively discouraging me. Anybody who's not resisting evil is encouraging evil. And it's like, no. Look at everything that's going on, you know, and everything that's going on isn't actively encouraging you or discouraging you. But if you're going to think one way or another, lean toward encouragement. Lean toward the fact that you have air to breathe and that you came to be, that an empty space was destroyed so that you could be created, so that you could be existed. You could be existed. That's smart. So that you could be existed. No, but an empty space was destroyed to create you, and now you exist, and you continue to have air to breathe, food to eat. In most cases, you know, you have the ability to sustain yourself, think new thoughts, and you think that the world is trying to hold you down? You think the world is trying to hold you back? You're alive. Like, the fact that you are alive, that alone means the world wants you to be here. You know, the world wants you to be here. Something wants you to be here, and it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if the world wants you to be here or if something wants you to be here, because you are here, and that's what it comes down to. If you are here, that is the end of all arguments. That is the end of all rumination. What else is there to think about if you are here and you know it? This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.